You'd say and I look like a whore. We <laughs> uh, <laughs> were getting Gooby out of bed, our, our four-year-old, who makes that an ordeal. Oh, yeah. Every day. It, usually what that ordeal involves is some kind of screaming and crying, picking an outfit and her saying, no, I don't want that, and throwing more of a fit and then picking a new outfit and getting that outfit on, her crawling back into our bed and then having to do some kind of tickle fight to get her out of the bed and get her to stand up and, and walk to the car. So Friday was just as any other day. Mm-hmm. During the, the tickle fight process, when Peter was lifting Goobert, uh, all of a sudden, Gooby got upset. It was like, ow! And like, maybe, I don't know, she was crying, but just like stopped laughing and was was over it. And we were like, oh, oh like, there, are you okay? Like, what, what's wrong, Gooby? And she's like, oh, that hurt my arm. And we are like, okay, well, sorry. that We're sorry that that happened. And she got out of bed. And I was getting ready for my day when Peter, about to leave, was like, oh, Gooby's still acting like her arm hurts. And we were like, oh, fuck. Did she break her arm? Did we? <laughs> and then Gooby ended up staying home. We were trying to get her to use it, pick things up with it, hold things with it. And when we would try to get her to do that, she would like squeal, be like, no, no, no. Like, it'd like really freak out. Yeah. Well, so for a while, we continue to try to get her to do things. She vehemently refuses. Yeah, she refuses the whole time. And then I, I said, let me see your arm. I need to look at it. And I did sort of stress tests on it. I bent her arm a little bit where if there was any kind of problem with her arm, would have resulted in pain. And I obviously would have let go immediately and we would have immediately well, gone. Yeah, to the it, it, anyone who's a parent knows what the fuck we're talking about. She did not squeal at any point. I, I did it all the way up her arm, did her fingers, thumb, wrist. I said to ACD, there's no broken bone here. That was, that was the thing that I said, but she did not stop with this arm shit. Yeah, she she kept up the arm shit. And so, like, to the point where if you would reach for her arm, she would, like, shriek. And we were like, oh, my God. And then so we started doubting ourselves. Yeah. And and, and I, I want to really just emphasize, she's holding her arm in and not moving it. And just, like. Yeah, the way that a child would if, if their arm was broken. So I'm now thinking, okay, so the only way to get this child out of bed and to school apparently breaks her arm. Yeah, right. We're, so I'm uh, like, what the fuck do we do? Yeah, like she she cannot be picked up. She cannot be tickled. She cannot be played with. She cannot do any rough and tumble of any kind. She is a a fragile small, small bean, bean, which yeah. is allowed because she's four. Yeah. and Her uh, bones are hollow. They're made- <laughs> They're made of paper mache. So it, it's a seven hour process of are, are we going to go? Are we not going? Is she hurt? Is she not hurt? Whatever. And we were like, okay, oh shit. We, we have to go to the doctor. Like, yeah. Which she associates exclusively with getting shots. Yes. She thinks that the doctor means getting shots. Yeah. Which they're they're going to look at my arm, see if it's broken or not. And they're going to give me a shot. Yeah. That's, that's what <laughs> that's she thinks. What is happening in Gooby's brain? The The plan ends up being that Peter takes her after picking up Bubba from school to the urgent clinic. I have her sitting in the lobby. I've done all the paperwork. Thankfully, she did this after I did all the paperwork, by the way. Uh-huh. Went through, filled out everything, which, by the way, is a fucking nightmare. Yeah, I had to all find her fucking, social and whatever. All of the fucking forms at... A doctor's office or just a fucking nightmare. I hand all the paperwork to the desk, come back and sit down. And Gooby's sitting there with her tablet, holding it with both hands. And I'm like, Gooby, how's your arm? She goes, I feel good now. Can you move it around like this? Does that hurt? No, it doesn't. It's like normal. It's like normal? It's good. <laughs> She's like shaking it around. She's, it's back to normal. Yeah, she goes, it's normal. 
This is a child that has been crying for seven hours. Right. So Gooby gaslit us. And (laughs) my four-year-old is putting me past my emotional bandwidth on this Friday before Mother's Day. So anyway, tighten your buttholes. It's time for Pact. I'm the P. Peter Coffin. The lovely Miss Astronaut Cowboy Doctor right here is the ACD. Together, we are packed. Damn it. It's not there. You should do that, though. Join. Yeah. We'll talk about it in a second. Uh, don't miss an episode. Like, comment, subscribe. Leave us a glowing review on YouTube, Spotify, or Apple Podcasts, or whatever weird thing you use to listen to podcasts. We are a five-star podcast. Not three. Not four. Five. I'm a five-star man. join our discord we hang out there all the time we chat we do some other fun stuff that you can access by becoming a patron like movie night reading group there's some exclusive content and some content you see before everyone else so help us keep the lights on by becoming a patron at patreon.com slash packed pod we've also got fantastic packed merch our best-selling shirt was you uh in your comfy with Uh king under the comfy king shirt the, the, three, King. the three arrows, but acceptable shirt um, <laughs> that has surpassed. Uh, also great shirt, though. Yes. Go to merch.packpod.com for that. Uh, finally, tell your friends uh, we rely. We rely so big on word of mouth. We stream Sunday evenings. Um, so thanks so much for everybody tuning in. Now, I don't know if you guys know this, but we are living in The Handmaid's Tale. <laughs> what? I snapped because I'm going to cut it. <laughs> uh, so we're in The Handmaid's Tale. Not great things are happening yeah. with, with the law, but that, that's not really the main focus of our episode today because we already sort of did an episode on that. Which we're going to talk about some, but... If you want to know what was said in that episode, we'll include a link in the description. It's just now the full fruits of Ruth Bader Ginsburg um, <laughs> being uh, a living corpse. And giving up the ghost at an inappropriate time. Uh, yeah. Rather than giving up her seat. Those ramifications are coming to roost. But also the Democrats not codifying this into law for the past 50 years so they can use that as a threat over working class people Mm -hmm. um, for which there's high popular support for the legalization of abortion, even among pro-life individuals. Well, your mom is. Yeah. My mom is probably more Catholic than she is. Well, it's very close, but like she is a, a Catholic Trump supporter who has done tons of like pro-life stuff. And she is acknowledging what is happening with Roe v. Wade as bad. We've already talked about laws related to abortion and really related to anything with it in a system wherein there's a capitalist economic base as being in a permissive mode that is always oppressive to the worker. Even under Roe v. Wade, um, the the conditional nature of it determining when the life starts, when when they're it's, allowed, it's when it's not, when, when it's yeah, this completely quantitative mode and arbitrary decision making that is contingent on the ruling class's permission. Um, and even if it was just at any time, abortion is completely fine or or completely legal. That's still a permissive mode in a capitalistic base wherein that can be taken away from you at any time. When liberals say pro-choice. Um, or even pro-abortion, they're really not talking about what this issue is really about. It is really about whether or not you are being economically coerced to have or not have a child. Either way, it's not about people's morals. It's not about whether or not people are good people or when a fetus's life starts, whether it's at week 14 or week 15. Um, if your ideal is my body, my choice, If that's something that you really believe in, then you can't believe that whatever quantitative rules that the state puts in place says tinkers around with like what number makes you allowed to do this or whether you can't do it here or can do it there. It's not a real choice because it doesn't really matter when a fetus's life starts. 
starts. What matters is that there is economic coercion that influences your decision. Right. And and then again, e- even if if that arbitrary decision making is abortion is OK at any time, that could be taken away. Yeah. Well, it's be again, like you said, the permissive mode. The state isn't run by the proletariat. It's run by the bourgeoisie. It's run by a tiny segment of people in the world, the ruling class. They have undue influence with money. They have control over the whole electoral process in various different ways. They run their people. They own the media. The media follows the interests of its owners. So you have media that is owned not only by like war contractors in the case of MSNBC, uh, GE war contractors. There's a whole apparatus that maintains the rule of a tiny number of people. And those people are ultimately the ones that are, you know, they get to argue with each other over the little, the little tiny old differences about you know, this week is when you can have an abortion, but this week that makes you a morally bad person and we can't let people do that. That's what it's about. That's horseshit. That isn't rights. That's being ruled. And as long as the economic system is set up the way it is, you will continue to be ruled. And today, in order to back that shit up, we're going to talk about the writing of Alexandra Kolontai. It's a theory reading. We sucked you in with what's going on. Yeah. Also, Peter, you're wearing your outfit like a whore. It's not closed up. So Alexander Kollontai, appointed um, commissar of the social welfare in the USSR upon completion of the Russian Revolution in 1917. The bitch was ahead of her time. Yeah. Oh, this bitch was way ahead of her time. But but she also wasn't. It's it's reflective of the same exact issues in class struggle persisting over the past 110 years. Mm -hmm. She wrote The Social Basis of the Woman Question in 1909, and she explores the idea of, is it necessary to have this separate, sanctioned-off feminism to advocate for a woman's rights, identified as siloed or dissociated from or above and beyond um, the general class struggle of the proletariat. Now, she was a very principled Marxist-Leninist. Yeah. Uh, her answer was no. <laughs> yeah. So so we're going to be delving into that today. We're going to read the social basis of the woman question together. We're going to comment on it. Mo- yeah, mostly. A, a I'm going to take this thing off. Um, I will not because I'm dedicated to the theatrics. Mine doesn't stay on, partly because I cut it. To get it off of my head. I just have a little baby neck. (laughs) I'll I'll start. We'll just switch off page to page. I think that's good. The social basis of the woman question. Leaving it to the bourgeois scholars to absorb themselves in discussion of the question of the superiority of one sex over the other, or in the weighing of brains and the comparing of the psychological structure of men and women, the followers of historical materialism fully accept the natural specificities of each sex and demand only that each person, whether man or woman or person, it was 1909, has a real opportunity for the fullest and freest self-determination and the widest scope for the development and application of all natural inclinations. The followers of historical materialism reject the existence of a special woman question separate from the general social question of our day. So the second sentence, um, no, there does not need to be a, a, a separate feministic movement beyond class struggle. Um, We'll get into that. Specific economic factors were behind the subordination of women. Natural qualities have been a secondary factor in this process. Only the complete disappearance of these factors, only the evolution of those forces, which at some point in the past gave rise to the subjection of women, is able in a fundamental way to influence and change their social position. In other words, women can become truly free and equal only in a world organized along new social and productive lines. So the goals of feminism, um, and she later does explicitly label this separate movement or ideological movement as feminism. Um, You're saying I look like a whore. (laughs) (laughs) Uh, (laughs) She, She labels this as feminism later in the essay, but that the the purported goals of any movement like that, 
which she elaborates on further in the paper, um, cannot happen at all um, in a capitalist society. So to have a separate movement of feminism dissociated from overall class struggle of the proletariat. So it's redundant if you're talking about feminism and that that's already incorporated into class struggle. Um, but it's it's also when separated and isolated from the class struggle movement, um, effete, <laughs> completely ineffective. Well, effective for the bourgeoisie. Right. Actually, completely effective for the current system. Ineffective for the proletariat and proletarian women. Right. Okay, but listen. This, however, does not mean that the partial improvement of woman's life within the framework of the modern system is impossible. The radical solution of the workers' question is possible only with the complete reconstruction of modern productive relations. But must this prevent us from working for reforms which would serve to satisfy the most urgent interests of the proletariat? On the contrary, each new gain of the working class represents a step leading mankind towards the kingdom of freedom and social equality. Each right that woman wins brings her nearer to the defined goal of full emancipation. Social democracy was the first to include in its program the demand for the equalization of rights of women with those of men. Uh, by the way, when we're talking about social democracy, we're not talking about Bernie Sanders. Like, we're talking about Russian socialists. Yes, it's it's the Russian Socialist Party, which um, several decades later in uh, Germany, the Social Democrats split from the communists at very violently, might I add. That is that has not happened in 1909. The Social Democratic Party is the party from which the Bolsheviks emerged. That is what we're talking about here. <laughs> yeah, uh, even Lenin used Social Democrats to include himself at the time. This is 1909. In speeches and in print, the party, the Russian Socialist Party, demands always and everywhere the withdrawal of limitations affecting women. It is the party's influence alone that has forced other parties and governments to carry out reforms in favor of women. And in Russia, this party is not only the defender of women in terms of its theoretical positions, but always and everywhere adheres to the principle of women's equality. So Russian socialists are already doing this. It, it's not a problem to advocate for women's rights in the system that we're in. We, in fact, need to be doing that. Mm -hmm. What, in this case, hinders our equal writers, that's R-I-G-H-T-E-R-S. Like alt-writers? Right, like the advocates of equal rights. What, in this case, hinders our equal writers from accepting the support of this strong and experienced party? The fact is that however radical the equal writers may be, they are still loyal to their own bourgeois class. Sound familiar? Political freedom is at the moment an essential prerequisite for the growth and power of the Russian bourgeoisie. Without it, all the economic warfare of the latter will turn out to have been built upon sand. The demand for political equality is for women a necessity that stems from life itself. The slogan of access to the professions... More female workers yeah that that's the 1909 version the slogan of access to the professions has ceased to suffice so hasn't worked only direct participation in the government of the country promises to assist in raising women's economic situation hence the passionate desire of women of the middle bourgeoisie to gain the franchise and hence their hostility to the modern bureaucratic system however in their demands for political equality our feminists are like their foreign sisters the wide horizons opened by social democratic learning remain alien and incomprehensible to them. The feminists seek equality in the framework of the existing class society. In no way do they attack the basis of this society. They fight for prerogatives for themselves without challenging the existing prerogatives and privileges. We do not accuse the representatives of bourgeois women's movement of failure to understand the matter. Their view of things flows inevitably from their class position. This is great because Colin Tai is talking about how we're, we're not like morally yeah. shaming these bourgeois feminist advocates. Mm -hmm. We're not morally condemning them. This is what their class position is. That superstructurally is what beliefs they would have. Mm -hmm. And that's why they're doing this. Mm -hmm. It's it's indirect uh, congruence with their influence. It's also in their interests to attempt to advocate and propagate that bourgeois consciousness among the proletariat. There is a little bit of mention of that later, but when you have a feminist advocating for solving bigotry before we try to do socialism, they're just acting in these interests. 
It's the the oil and water analogy. I don't remember it right now. What are we talking about? Oh, so if you think about removing ideological bigotries before addressing class relations. I know what you're talking about now. Yeah. Outside of addressing class relations, you can think of a, a body of water that, that's utilized for drinking in a community. There's a, a, a pump pumping oil into the water. Everybody to solve this problem is focusing on going directly to the water and removing the oil from the water. But unfortunately, as that's happening, more oil continues to be pumped into the water. Which the pump is what needs to be addressed. Right. The solution to that is to remove the oil pump. And after you do that, there will still be oil in the water. But then you are actually able to remove the oil mm -hmm. from the water without more of it being pumped in. Because you don't have, again, to to pull up the curtain, uh, the economic base that is perpetuating those ideological bigotries. When your partner remembers your material and you don't, <laughs> I just outwardly just didn't know what you were talking about. <laughs> I was like, what are you talking about? Well, yeah, I guess. Like, yeah, it is like oil and water. <laughs> that was that was the thought process that went in my brain. I was like, yeah, those things, they shouldn't go together. Yeah. No, I forgot. I that what what video was that in that I did that? That was I feel like I did that in a doc, like maybe a longer period of time. No, no, maybe I came up with that. I don't know. Like at this point I don't trust my own mind. The struggle for economic independence. First of all, we must ask ourselves whether a single united women's movement is possible in a society based on class contradictions. No, it's not. And I'm I'm going to say this really quick. Her style is to ask devil's advocate questions and answer them. <laughs> and this is not a criticism because it works. The fact that the women who take part in the liberation movement do not represent one homogenous mass is clear to every unbiased observer. The woman's world is divided, just as is the world of men, into two camps. The interests and aspirations of one group of women bring it close to the bourgeois class, while the other group has close connections with the proletariat and its claims for liberation encompass a full solution to the woman question. Thus, although both camps follow the general slogan of the liberation of women, their aims and interests are different. Each of the groups unconsciously takes its starting point from the interests of its own class, which gives a specific class coloring to the targets and the tasks it sets itself. So, a struggle has class character. That's the dichotomy she draws. Uh, bourgeois equals feminism. Proletariat equals socialist, essentially, it, you can apply this essay to pretty much any singular identity driven liberatory politics. Uh, you can understand that the problems put forward exist, but also understand that they are tied up within class struggle. There's a lot of distinctions that are drawn following this, which make this much more clear. So we will continue. However apparently radical the demands of the feminists, one must not lose sight of the fact that the feminists cannot, on account of their class position, fight for that fundamental transformation of the contemporary economic and social structure of society without which the liberation of women cannot be complete. If, in certain circumstances, the short-term tasks of women of all classes coincide, the final aims of the two camps which in the long term determine the direction of the movement and the tactics to be used differ sharply. While for the feminists, the achievement of equal rights with men in the framework of the contemporary capitalist world represents a sufficiently concrete end in itself, equal rights at the present time are, for the proletarian women, only a means of advocating the struggle against the economic slavery of the working class. The feminists see men as the main enemy. For men, have unjustly seized all rights and privileges for themselves, leaving women only chains and duties. For them, a victory is won when a prerogative previously enjoyed exclusively by the male sex is conceded to the quote-unquote fair sex. Proletarian women have a different attitude. They do not see men as the enemy and the oppressor. On the contrary, they think of men as their comrades who share with them the drudgery of the daily round and fight with them for a better future. 
The woman and her male comrade are enslaved by the same social conditions. The same hated chains of capitalism oppress their will and deprive them of the joys and charms of life. It is true that several specific aspects of the contemporary system lie with double weight upon women, as it is also true that the conditions of hired labor sometimes turn working women into competitors and rivals to men. But in these unfavorable situations, the working class knows who is guilty. So what do we want to take away from that? That you can't separate identity struggle from class struggle. You can't solve social issues first. Why? Because the social issues are downstream of the same mechanics as the quote unquote economic issues. And, and because those social issues are downstream of our current economic system and the resulting class struggle, you cannot make an issue that's explicitly designed for those social issues for it to work. Just like this Roe v. Wade advocacy, anything that you do or any advances that you make are always constantly in a permissive mode that can be taken away from you that are contingent on the ruling class. The issue is never solved. And some people will say, well, that's that's because the Democrats don't want to solve it. They can use it as a, a voting issue. Sure, that's 100% true. But the fact is you cannot solve bodily autonomy, my body, my choice. You can't solve these things without changing the economic relations. If you could get every single person on the planet to agree that women should have equal rights, you know what would happen? Because of historical um, disparities because of ideology and because of economic relations. The same thing would continue to happen that happened before everybody agreed on that because these economic relations create that. It's exactly like when I talk about woke bay police officer in the black neighborhood. It doesn't matter. Like he's going to kill black people anyway. And it's going to be because there are more black people in a poor neighborhood that is over policed. Yep. And slightly different example and context is the, the abortion issue right now. Again, like how large is the popular support for having a legal right to abortion access? It's anywhere between 58 and 70 percent, which is pretty damn big yeah, for, the- for especially what has been done to this issue in the 70s and 80s, specifically to polarize the working class. Mm-hmm. Um, that's a high majority. Well, I mean, even 58, the lowest figure in the polling that people have have put forward. 58 means 42 is on the other side. That's a pretty big spread. That is a wide majority. Also, Medicare for all, widely popular. The result of a lot of polling shows that somewhere in the neighborhood of 80 percent of people in the U.S., including a large number of Republicans, like a third of Republicans support Medicare for all. The woman worker, no less than her brother in misfortune, hates that insatiable monster with his gilded maw, which concerned only to drain all the sap from its victims and grow at the expense of millions of human lives, throws itself with equal greed at man, woman and child. Thousands of threads bring the working man close. The aspirations of bourgeois women, on the other hand, seem strange and incomprehensible. They're not warming to the proletarian heart. They do not promise the proletarian woman what bright future towards which the eyes of all exploited humanity are turned. She's saying it's off-putting. She's saying like the things that they care about end up being off-putting. Should we be able to fuck our cousin or dead people or should we not? Yeah, that's exactly it. <laughs> it's these insane conversations that people have and then get screen captured and passed around Facebook and Reddit. Should Look at these I run nu- a Discord where 13-year-olds are exchanging nudes? Can I do that? Can I do that as an adult? Says the bourgeois feminist, of course. Ratio. <laughs> The proletarian women's final aim does not, of course, prevent them from desiring to improve their status, even within the framework of the current bourgeois system, because the realization of these desires is constantly hindered by obstacles that derive from the very nature of capitalism. A woman can possess equal rights and be truly free only in a world of socialized labor, harmony and justice. Not noted is that the profits also need to be socialized. She's obviously assume uh, making that assumption, like she's saying socialized labor. 
in capitalism, labor is socialized. Right. The feminists are unwilling and incapable of understanding this. <laughs> what have I been saying for years? And people are just like, you hate women. And it's like, no. You I'm are a tell- man wearing nail polish. It's like, no. I am, I'm saying that dialectical materialism and class struggle cover the economic basis from which uh, all of the issues that we do acknowledge are real, just like she does here. Often these problems weigh more heavy upon women or, uh, again, any identity. The idea is that we must be engaging class struggle, which requires us instead of saying, you're the enemy, you're the enemy, you are the oppressor, you are the oppressor. Instead, you're saying, wait, wait, we're all in the same fucking class. The same fucking people are oppressing us. It just shocks me that like people don't realize how much the the identity political line feeds into bourgeois interests. This is exactly what they want you to do is to faction yourselves off as unique, as different, as completely unable to understand one another. Yeah. If you go on Wikipedia, they label Alexander Kollontai as a Marxist feminist. Kollontai as a Marxist feminist. It's not proletarian feminism, though. Let's just go ahead and say that. There is an explicit dichotomy being made between feminism and class struggle. She is criticizing feminism, not saying there is a proletarian feminism. We were thinking about this like ideologically, like, oh, well, if feminism has been co-opted into like this bourgeois thing or whatever, then like could patriotism be the same thing? And it's like, no, this is differentiating because patriotism is not a set of finalities or end goals. It's a mechanism for achieving something that has class character based off of the material context within which it's applied. Whereas feminism is advocating for a different thing than socialism. Yeah. 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 There's again, uh, it is necessarily redundant by separating off something from Marxism or class struggle that is already inherently there and thereby misleading in terms Mm -hmm. of what Marxist or communist goals are. Or if it's separating itself from class struggle, it will be completely ineffective in its purported finalities and end goals because it is dissociated from the economic base. Mm -hmm. The feminists are unwilling and incapable of understanding this. It seems to them that when equality is formally accepted by the letter of the law, they'll be able to win a comfortable place for themselves in the old world of oppression, enslavement, and bondage, of tears and hardship. And this is true up to a certain point. For the majority of women of the proletariat, equal rights with men would mean only an equal share in inequality. But for the chosen few, for the bourgeois women, it would indeed open doors to new and unprecedented rights and privileges that until now have been enjoyed by men of the bourgeois class alone, i.e. equal representation in the bourgeoisie. Representation matters. I'm <laughs> But each new concession won by the bourgeois women would give her yet another weapon for the exploitation of her younger sister and would go on increasing the division between the women of the two opposite social camps. Their interests would be more sharply in conflict, their aspirations more obviously in contradiction. The feminists are advocating for something different than class struggle. Class struggle is not feminism. Feminism is not class struggle. There is no proletarian class struggle feminism. includes the, the purported goals of feminism. Though. Well, that's exactly it. Class but those stru- goals can't be achieved in a feminist movement that is isolated from class struggle. Exactly. Where then is that general woman question? Where is that unity of tasks and aspirations about which the feminists have so much to say? A sober glance at reality shows that such unity does not and cannot exist. In vain, the feminists try to assure themselves that the woman question has nothing to do with that of the political party. 
and that its solution is possible only with the participation of all parties and all women. As one of the radical German feminists has said, the logic of facts forces us to reject this comforting delusion of the feminists. Uh, the conditions and forms of production have subjugated women throughout human history and have gradually relegated them to the position of oppression and dependence in which most of them existed until now. A colossal upheaval of the entire social and economic structure was required before women could begin to retrieve the significance and independence they had lost. Problems which at one time seemed too difficult for the most talented thinkers have now been solved by the inanimate but all-powerful conditions of production. The same forces which for thousands of years enslaved women now, at a further stage of development, are leading them along the path to freedom and independence. So she's talking about, I don't want to say the successes of capitalism, but the productive developments that capitalism mm -hmm, mm -hmm. served as a conduit to has change the position of women absolutely in society well think about the difference of of the feudal relationship uh between men and women versus the capitalist one absolutely capitalism is a progressive force in relation to feudalism right. however we're not we're, we're not we're not acting in relation to feudalism anymore so she's using a historical materialist perspective dialectical materialist perspective to talk about how uh, the feminist movements have gained their grounding and how the proletarian struggle of women has has changed. The woman question assumed importance for women of the bourgeois classes approximately in the middle of the 19th century, a considerable time after the proletarian women had arrived in the labor arena. Under the impact of the monstrous successes of capitalism, the middle classes of the population were hit by waves of need. The economic changes had rendered the financial situation of the petty and middle bourgeoisie unstable, and the bourgeois women were faced with a dilemma of menacing proportions, either accept poverty or achieve the right to work. Wives and daughters of these social groups began to knock at the doors of the universities, the art salons, the editorial houses, the offices, flooding the professions that were open to them. The desire of bourgeois women to gain access to science and the higher benefits of culture was not the result of a sudden maturing need, but stemmed from that same question of daily bread. So their coercion into labor. The women of the bourgeoisie met from the very first with stiff resistance from men. A stubborn battle was waged between the professional men attached to their cozy little jobs and the women who were novices in the matter of earning their daily bread. This struggle gave rise to feminism the attempts of bourgeois women to stand together and pit their common strength against the enemy, against men. As they entered the labor arena, these women proudly referred to themselves as the vanguard of the women's movement. They forgot that in this matter of winning economic independence, they were, as in other fields, traveling in the footsteps of their younger sisters and reaping the fruits of the efforts of their blistered hands. The feminist movement emerged from women of the bourgeoisie who are immediately dissociating from the needs of the proletarian women which by the way the proletarian women were forced at the time of capitalism's transition from feudalism to go into the cities from these farms and become proletarian become workers as kolontai says they wore the path that these bourgeois feminists were walking yeah the footsteps of their younger sisters and reaping the fruits of the efforts of their blistered hands. I mean, that's pretty fucking intense. Yeah. Well, I mean, these women would go uh, into the city and uh, they'd get a job at a factory, which at the time of the Industrial Revolution was even more dangerous than it is now. And people still lose hands in factories, still lose fingers. And after these women did what was necessary and it was shown that you could have cheaper labor from women, the bourgeois class women went into uh, institutions like universities and uh, culture centers and said, ah, we demand equal treatment. Sounds familiar. Is it then really possible to talk of the feminists pioneering the road to women's work when in every country, hundreds of thousands of proletarian women had flooded the factories and workshops, taking over one branch of industry after another before the bourgeois women's movement was ever born? So exactly what we were just talking about paving the way to have bourgeois women infiltrate these comfy professional male-dominated industries to advocate for equal rights after proletarian women have already been working their asses off that, that in dangerous being, conditions in dangerous for low conditions pay. for low pay after being coerced into the labor force 
Only thanks to the fact that the labor of women workers had received recognition on the world market were the bourgeois women able to occupy the independent position in society in which the feminists take up so much pride. We find it difficult to point to even one fact in the history of the struggle of the proletarian women to improve their material conditions, to which the general feminist movement has contributed significantly. Basically saying, the bourgeois feminists have done nothing significant um, for advancing women's rights um, relative to what proletarian women have already done. Yeah, they've, they've worked, they've had to work, and these women are using that more or less, whether consciously or unconsciously, and this is still the case today, um, are using that struggle as a basis for the idea that they are um, as oppressed, despite their relative position. What, bourgeois women? Yeah. Whatever the proletarian women have achieved in the sphere of raising their own living standards is the result of the efforts of the working class in general and of themselves in particular. The history of the struggle of the working women for better conditions of labor and for a more decent life is the history of the struggle of the proletariat for its liberation. Yes, bitch. It's that it is the result of class struggle. Alexandra Kolontai, everyone. <laughs> yeah. What if not the fear of a dangerous explosion of proletarian dissatisfaction forces the factory owners to raise the price of labor, reduces hours and introduce better working conditions? What if not the fear of labor unrest persuades the government to establish legislation to limit the exploitation of labor by capital? There is not one party in the world that has taken up the defense of women as social democracy has done. Again, just quickly interjecting, that is the Russian Socialist Party, where the Bolsheviks emerged from, where the revolution emerged from, etc., cetera, etc. Cetera. Not what people mean when they say social democrat today. The working woman is first and foremost a member of the working class, and the more satisfactory the position and general welfare of each member of the proletarian family, the greater the benefit in the long run to the whole of the working class. In the face of growing social difficulties, the sincere fighter for the cause must stop in sad bewilderment. She cannot but see how little the general woman's movement has done for the proletarian women how incapable it is of improving the working and living conditions of the working class. The future of humanity must seem gray, drab, and uncertain to those women who are fighting for equality, but who have not adopted the proletarian world outlook or developed a firm faith in the coming of a more perfect social system. While the contemporary capitalist world remains unchanged, liberation must seem to them incomplete and impartial. This is where she starts reflecting what I have been saying. Yeah. And, and this is where we'll expand this analysis, that, which we already have. Um, but beyond just the, the social question of the woman, but any social vector of marginalization, when you see the products of identitarian struggles removed from class interests, they're inevitably ineffective. And then you lead into this fork. This is modern times where you're either reverting back to liberalism and just acting like you haven't seen the matrix and engaging in all of these useless uh, advocacy efforts that ultimately won't advance whatever identitarian right you're advocating for. Or you get into this doomer state where you think that everything is awful, everything is impossible, there's no possible way out of this, I don't know what Marxism is, um, so I'm just going to shit on everything and be reactionary, contrarian, um, not engage. Where there's a third path called Marxism. Yeah. <laughs> and, but when you, the, the how I had come up with that fork is... When you take anarchism to its final analysis, yes. you come at that point of realizing an efficacy or being a doomer, um, reverting to liberalism or nothing um, until you turn to something else. But it's also a, a workable paradigm for like the forks off of just general leftism, like the post left operates as the doomer in that where the leftists who during the Bernie campaign were saying a rising tide raises all boats uh, and, and have now reverted back to this idiotic identitarian bioessentialism. Yep. What despair must grip the more thoughtful and sensitive of these women? 
Only the working class is capable of maintaining morale in the modern world with its distorted social relations, which I hate to just keep stopping. But like, why do you think that despite all of these horrible things happening constantly in the world, I remain optimistic? It's the same thing being described here because I see various dead ends being hit when you're doing a maze. Every single dead end you hit is a place that you won't go again, and you will continue to the end of the maze, the goal. And Peter's reason for living has just been (laughs) revealed. (laughs) No, it's a really good analogy. You've never said that before. I usually come up with these great analogies that I forget in like a year. And then I'll remember. (laughs) Then you'll remember it. (laughs) I, I am optimistic. I see a future. I see that. There are people, although we have idiots like Thought Slime talking shit constantly, there are lots of normal people who are seeing the shit that we say and going, oh, actually, yeah. And they're joining organizations like the CPI. And we're developing a new socialist party with the SPA. There's things happening that are not only online and not only offline. We've talked about how it's absolutely ridiculous to sit around and say, you need to go touch grass and organize in real life. That's bullshit. This is part of society. So is that. Everything has to be integrated. We have to understand that this media presence, if we just forego it, that's dumb. We have to participate in these things. We have to be reaching into the matrix and bringing people out. There is more to it than just saying this shit, obviously. But that stuff is stuff that we are working on integrating and actually putting in motion. It's important to be optimistic, though. It's not that we see the future the exact way that it's going to to pan out. But we understand that history is happening. Society will develop beyond where we are now. This shit is is banger shit. And it, it provides the distinctions that so many people need to hear. With firm and measured step, it advances steadily towards its aim. It draws the working women to its ranks. The proletarian woman bravely starts out on the thorny path of labor. Her legs sag. Her body is torn. There are dangerous precipices along the way, and cruel beasts of prey are close at hand. But only by taking this path is the woman able to achieve that distant but alluring aim her true liberation into a new world of labor. During this difficult march to the bright future, the proletarian woman, until recently a humiliated, downtrodden slave with no rights, learns to discard the slave mentality that has clung to her. Step by step, she transforms herself into an independent worker, an independent personality, free in love. It is she, fighting in the ranks of the proletariat, who wins for women the right to work. It is she, the younger sister, who prepares the ground for the free and equal women of the future. For what reason, then, should the woman worker seek a union with the bourgeois feminists, who, in actual fact, would stand to gain in the event of such an alliance? And this is where it gets very important. Certainly not the woman worker. She is her own savior. Her future is in her own hands. The working woman guards her class interests and is not deceived by great speeches about the world all women share. The working woman must not and does not forget that while the aim of bourgeois women is to secure their own welfare in the framework of a society antagonistic to us, our aim is to build in the place of the old outdated world, a bright temple of universal labor, comradely solidarity, and joyful freedom. Mwah. That's the shit right there. Keep in mind, this writer, although lumped in with proletarian feminism and Marxist feminism by various liberals, this person has dichotomized socialism and feminism. And what has she said? There is no value in proletarian women aligning themselves with feminists. Why? Because it's bourgeois ideology that separates the interests, separates the advocacy, separates the tactics into something completely different from that 
of advocacy towards a better world at the base level. And you can apply that last paragraph to any. Any. uh, Absolutely. The shared world that the top critical race theorist who got mad at me for saying classes related to racialized outcomes in general um, in the United States, the shared world that she experiences with a homeless black woman is not a rhetoric that I think is of interest in pursuing. That's a very good example. The woman who came in to do a, a critical race theory presentation that you attended, who got insecure when you mentioned class. Yeah. In like a very non-confrontational way. I, I think I asked, no, you like, were, how you does were... class play a role in this? Yeah, you asked a and question. And she immediately said, well, black wealthy women experience racism too. And I was like, Okay, it didn't say that that doesn't happen, but... um... The working woman guards her class interests and is not deceived by great speeches about the world all women share. Exactly. I feel like what's important to leave people with here is that if the long game isn't the overturn of the primary contradiction of capitalism, that is to say, the privatization of profits while labor has been socialized. If that's not the long-term goal, your tactics are not going to be the same. Not at all. And therefore, you're ultimately never going to be addressing the fact that um, women's oppression comes from the ruling class. Therefore, the ruling class, the bourgeoisie, the capitalist class, the owners who have the relation to the means of production, which ensures that that oppression happens. If we're not addressing that at the very core of what we're doing, all we're really doing is asking those people for permission for the good ones to have good positions. That's what good representation is. It's taking the good ones, making them very visible and making them very comfortable. (laughs) The good ones, meaning the ones that endorse everything ideologically that the bourgeoisie is telling the proletariat again. The bourgeois feminists, the feminists, we shouldn't even say the bourgeois feminists, the feminists are seeding false consciousness. The owners, the capitalists, the bourgeoisie, the people in charge, the people who run everything, the people who have control over the government via various means, whether that be funding, whether that be lobbying, whether that be the fact that most of the people in the fucking government have connections to some owner somewhere, unless we're dealing with that relationship we aren't actually genuinely advocating for all of women or as an analog any marginalized group yeah and you you can't possibly do so if no. if, if your struggle is not embedded within the general uh, i think she calls it the general social question of today but it, if if not embedded in class struggle and that's it for Pact. Thanks again for watching or listening. I'm Peter. This is Miss Astronaut Cowboy Doctor. To help us out, click like, follow, subscribe, join our Discord, leave us five-star reviews on Apple Podcasts and Spotify. To support us, become a patron at patreon.com slash packpod. That's P-A-C-D-P-O-D. Thanks so much. Come back next week.